Welcome to the second part of Carmilla. Uh, this is Tony Walker reading out from the Classic Ghost Stories podcast. I hope you've heard some of our other stuff. Um, you don't want to hear from me now. You just want to hear more Carmilla. So this is part two. If this is the first one you've listened to, go back and listen to part one. It'll make a lot more sense. Okay, speak to you later. Chapter 6. A Very Strange Agony When we got into the drawing room and had sat down to our coffee and chocolate, although Carmela did not take any, she seemed quite herself again, and Madame and Mademoiselle de la Fontaine joined us and made a little card party, in the course of which Papa came in for what he called his dish of tea. When the game was over, he sat down beside Carmela on the sofa and asked her a little anxiously whether she had heard from her mother since her arrival. She answered, no. He then asked whether she knew where a letter would reach her at present. I cannot tell, she answered ambiguously. But I have been thinking of leaving you. You have been already too hospitable and too kind to me. I have given you an infinity of trouble, and I should wish to take a carriage tomorrow and post in pursuit of her. I know where I shall ultimately find her, although I dare not tell you. But you must not dream of any such thing, exclaimed my father to my great relief. We can't afford to lose you so, and I won't consent to your leaving us except under the care of your mother, who was so good as to consent to your remaining with us till she should herself return. I should be quite happy if I knew that you had heard from her, but this evening the accounts of the progress of the mysterious disease that has invaded our neighbourhood grow even more alarming, and my beautiful guest, I do feel the responsibility, unaided by advice from your mother, very much. But I shall do my best, and one thing is certain that you must not think of leaving us without her distinct direction to that effect. We should suffer too much in parting from you to consent to it easily. Thank you, sir, a thousand times for your hospitality, she answered, smiling bashfully. You have all been too kind to me. I have seldom been so happy in all my life before, as in your beautiful chateau, under your care, and in the society of your dear daughter. So he gallantly, in his old-fashioned way, kissed her hand, smiling, and pleased at her little speech. I accompanied Carmilla as usual to her room, and sat and chatted with her while she was preparing for bed. Do you think, I said at length, that you will ever confide fully in me? She turned round, smiling, but made no answer, only continued to smile at me. You won't answer that, I said. You can't answer pleasantly. I ought not to have asked you. You were quite right to ask me that, or anything. You do not know how dear you are to me, or you could not think any confidence too great to look for, but I am under vows. No nun half so awfully, and I dare not tell my story yet, even to you. The time is very near when you shall know everything. You will think me cruel, very selfish, but love is always selfish. The more ardent, the more selfish. How jealous I am, you cannot know. You must come with me, loving me to death or else hate me and still come with me, and hating me through death and after. There is no such word as indifference in my apathetic nature. Now, Carmilla, you're going to talk your wild nonsense again, I said hastily. Not I, silly little fool as I am, and full of whims and fancies, for your sake, I'll talk like a sage. Were you ever at a ball? No. How you do run on? What's it like? How charming it must be. You're not so old. Your first ball can hardly be forgotten yet. I remember everything about it, with an effort. I see it all, as divers see what is going on above them through a medium, dense, rippling, but transparent. There occurred that night what has confused the picture and made its colours faint, 
I was all but assassinated in my bed, wounded, here, she touched her breast, and never was the same since. Were you near dying? Yes, very. A cruel love, strange love, that would have taken my life. Love will have its sacrifices. No sacrifice without blood. Let us go to sleep now. I feel so lazy. How can I get up just now and lock my door? She was lying with her tiny hands buried in her rich, wavy hair, under her cheek, her little head upon the pillow, and her glittering eyes followed me wherever I moved, with a kind of shy smile that I couldn't decipher. I bid her good night and crept from the room with an uncomfortable sensation. I often wondered whether our pretty guest ever said her prayers. I certainly had never seen her upon her knees. In the morning she never came down until long after our family prayers were over. And at night she never left the drawing room to attend our brief evening prayers in the hall. If it had not been that it had casually come out in one of our careless talks that she had been baptised, I should have doubted her being a Christian. Religion was a subject on which I had never heard her speak a word. If I had known the world better, this particular neglect or antipathy would have not so much surprised me. The precautions of nervous people are infectious, and persons of a like temperament are pretty sure, after a time, to imitate them. I had adopted Carmilla's habit of locking her bedroom door, having taken into my head all her whimsical alarms about midnight invaders and prowling assassins. I had also adopted her precaution of making a brief search through her room to satisfy herself that no lurking assassin or robber was ensconced. These wise measures taken, I got into my bed and fell asleep. A light was burning in my room. This was an old habit of a very early date and which nothing could have tempted me to dispense with. Thus fortified, I might take my rest in peace. But dreams come through stone walls, light up dark rooms, or darkened light ones, and their persons make their exits and their entrances as they please, and laugh at locksmiths. I had a dream that night that was the beginning of a very strange agony. I cannot call it a nightmare, for I was quite conscious of being asleep, but I was equally conscious of being in my room and lying in bed precisely as I actually was. I saw... Or fancied I saw the room and its furniture, just as I had seen it last, except that it was very dark, and I saw something moving round the foot of the bed, which at first I couldn't accurately distinguish. But I soon saw that it was a sooty black animal that resembled a monstrous cat. It appeared to me about four or five feet long, for it measured fully the length of the hearthrug as it passed over it, and it continued toing and froing with the lithe, sinister restlessness of a beast in a cage. I couldn't cry out, although, as you may suppose, I was terrified. Its pace was growing faster, and the room rapidly darker and darker, and at length so dark that I could no longer see anything of it but its eyes. I felt it spring lightly on the bed. The two broad eyes approached my face, and suddenly I felt a stinging pain, as if Two large needles darted an inch or two apart, deep into my breast. I waked with a scream. The room was lighted by the candle that burnt there all through the night, and I saw a female figure standing at the foot of the bed, a little at the right side. It was in a dark, loose dress, and its hair was down and covered its shoulders. A block of stone could not have been more still. There was not the slightest stir of respiration. As I stared at it, the figure appeared to have changed its place and was now 
nearer the door, then close to it. The door opened, and it passed out. I was now relieved and able to breathe and move. My first thought was that Carmilla had been playing me a trick, and that I had forgotten to secure my door. I hastened to it, and found it locked, as usual, on the inside. I was afraid to open it. I was horrified. I sprang into my bed and covered my head up in the bedclothes, and lay there, more dead than alive, till morning. 7. Descending It would be vain my attempting to tell you the horror with which, even now, I recall the occurrence of that night. It was no such transitory terror as a dream leaves behind it. It seemed to deepen by time, and communicated itself to the room and the very furniture that had encompassed the apparition. I could not bear next day to be alone for a moment. I should have told Papa, but for two opposite reasons. At one time I thought he would laugh at my story, and I couldn't bear it being treated as a jest. At another, I thought he might fancy that I had been attacked by the mysterious complaint which had invaded our neighbourhood. I had myself no misgiving of that kind, and as he had been rather an invalid for some time, I was afraid of alarming him. I was comfortable enough with my good-natured companions, Madame Peridon and the vivacious Mademoiselle Lafontaine. They both perceived that I was out of spirits and nervous, and at length I told them what lay so heavy at my heart. Mademoiselle laughed, but I fancied that Madame Peridon looked anxious. By the by, said Mademoiselle, laughing, the long lime-tree walk behind Carmilla's bedroom window is haunted. Nonsense, exclaimed Madame who probably thought the theme rather inopportune. And who tells that story, my dear? Martin says that he came up twice when the old yard gate was being repaired, before sunrise, and twice saw the same female figure walking down the Lime Tree Avenue. So he well might, as long as there are cows to milk in the river field, said Madame. I dare say, but Martin chooses to be frightened, and never did I see a fool more frightened. You must not say a word about it to Carmilla, because she can see down that walk from her room window, I interposed, and she is, if possible, a greater coward than I. Carmilla came down rather later than usual that day. I was so frightened last night, she said, so soon as we were together, and I am sure I should have seen something dreadful if it had not been for that charm I bought from the poor little hunchback whom I called such hard names. I had a dream of something black coming round my bed, and I awoke in a perfect horror, and I really thought for some seconds I saw a dark figure near the chimney-piece, but I felt under my pillow for my charm, and the moment my fingers touched it, the figure disappeared, and I felt quite certain, only that I had it by me, that something frightful would have made its appearance, and perhaps throttled me, as it did those poor people we heard of. Well, listen to me, I began, and recounted my adventure, at the recital of which she appeared horrified. And had you the charm near you? she asked earnestly. No, I dropped it in a china vase in the drawing room, but I shall certainly take it with me tonight, as you have so much faith in it. At this distance of time I cannot tell you or even understand how I overcame my horror so effectually as to lie alone in my room that night. I remember distinctly that I pinned the charm to my pillow. I fell asleep almost immediately and slept even more soundly than usual all night. Next night I passed as well. My sleep was delightfully deep and dreamless. But I awakened with a sense of lassitude and melancholy, which, however, did not exceed a degree that was almost luxurious. Well, I told you so, said Carmilla, when I described my quiet sleep. 
I had such a delightful sleep myself last night. I pinned the charm to the breast of my nightdress. It was too far away the night before. I'm quite sure it was all fancy except the dreams. I used to think that evil spirits made dreams, but our doctor told me it's no such thing, only a fever passing by or some other malady, as they often do, he said, knocks at the door, and not being able to get in passes on without alarm. And what do you think the charm is, said I? It has been fumigated or immersed in some drug, and is an antidote against the malaria, she answered. Then it only acts on the body? Certainly. You don't suppose that evil spirits are frightened by bits of ribbon or the perfumes of a druggist's shop? No, these complaints wandering in the air begin by trying the nerves, and so infect the brain. But before they can seize upon you, the antidote repels them. That, I'm sure, is what the charm has done for us. It's nothing magical. It's simply natural. I should have been happier if I could have quite agreed with Carmilla, but I did my best, and the impression was a little losing its force. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude, and a languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I wouldn't have interrupted. Dim thoughts of death began to open, and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle, and somehow not unwelcome, possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Whatever it might be, my soul acquiesced in it. I would not admit that I was ill, I would not consent to tell my papa or to have the doctor sent for. Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever, and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing ardour the more my strength and spirits waned. This always shocked me, like a momentary glare of insanity. Without knowing it, I was now in a pretty advanced stage of the strangest illness under which mortal ever suffered. There was an unaccountable fascination in its earlier symptoms that more than reconciled me to the incapacitating effect of that stage of the malady. This fascination increased for a time, until it reached a certain point when gradually a sense of the horrible mingled itself with it, deepening, as you shall hear, until it discoloured and perverted the whole state of my life. The first change I experienced was rather agreeable. It was very near the turning point from which began the descent of Avernus. Certain vague and strange sensations visited me in my sleep. The prevailing one was that of a pleasant, peculiar cold thrill which we feel in bathing when we move against the current of a river. This was soon accompanied by dreams that seemed interminable and were so vague that I could never recollect their scenery and persons or any one connected portion of their action. But they left an awful impression and a sense of exhaustion as if I had passed through a long period of great mental exertion and danger. After all these dreams, there remained on waking a remembrance of having been in a place very nearly dark, and of having spoken to people whom I could not see, and especially of one clear voice of a female's, very deep, that spoke as if at a distance, slowly, and producing always the same sensation of indescribable solemnity and fear. Sometimes there came a sensation as if a hand was drawn softly along my cheek and neck. Sometimes it was as if warm lips kissed me, and longer and longer and more lovingly as they reached my throat, but there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster, my breathing rose and fell rapidly and full-drawn, a sobbing, 
that rose into a sense of strangulation supervened and turned into a dreadful convulsion in which my senses left me and I became unconscious. It was now three weeks since the commencement of this unaccountable state. My sufferings had, during the last week, told upon my appearance. I had grown pale, my eyes were dilated and darkened underneath, and the languor which I had long felt began to display itself in my countenance. My father asked me often whether I was ill, but, with an obstinacy which now seems to me unaccountable, I persisted in assuring him that I was quite well. In a sense this was true, I had no pain, I could complain of no bodily derangement. My complaint seemed to be one of the imagination, or the nerves, and horrible as my sufferings were, I kept them, with a morbid reserve, very nearly to myself. It could not be that terrible complaint which the peasants called the upir, for I had now been suffering for three weeks, and they were seldom ill for much more than three days, when death put an end to their miseries. Carmilla complained of dreams and feverish sensations, but by no means of so alarming a kind as mine. I say that mine were extremely alarming. Had I been capable of comprehending my condition, I would have invoked aid and advice on my knees. The narcotic of an unsuspected influence was acting upon me, and my perceptions were benumbed. I'm going to tell you now of a dream that led immediately to an odd discovery. One night, instead of the voice I was accustomed to hear in the dark, I heard one sweet and tender, and at the same time terrible, which said, Your mother warns you to beware of the assassin. At the same time a light unexpectedly sprang up, and I saw Carmilla standing near the foot of my bed, in her white nightdress, bathed from her chin to her feet, in one great stain of blood. I wakened with a shriek, possessed with the one idea that Carmilla was being murdered. I remember springing from my bed, and my next recollection is that of standing on the lobby crying for help. Madame and Mademoiselle came scurrying out of their rooms in alarm. A lamp burned always on the lobby, and seeing me, they soon learned the cause of my terror. I insisted on our knocking on Carmilla's door, and knocking was unanswered. It soon became a pounding and an uproar. We shrieked her name, but all was vain. We all grew frightened, for the door was locked. We hurried back in panic to my room. There we rang the bell long and furiously. If my father's room had been at that side of the house, we would have called him up at once to our aid, but, alas, he was quite out of hearing, and to reach him involved an excursion for which none of us had courage. Servants, however, soon came running up the stairs. I had got on my dressing gown and slippers meanwhile, and my companions were already similarly furnished. Recognising the voices of the servants on the lobby, we sallied out together, and having renewed as fruitlessly our summons on Carmilla's door, I ordered the men to force the lock. They did so, and we stood, holding our lights aloft in the doorway, and so stared into the room. We called her by name, but there was still no reply. We looked around the room. Everything was undisturbed. It was exactly in the state which I had left it on bidding her good night. But Carmilla was gone. 8. Search at sight of the room perfectly undisturbed except for our violent entrance, we began to cool a little, and soon recovered our senses sufficiently to dismiss the men. It had struck Mademoiselle that possibly Carmilla had been wakened by the uproar at her door, and in her first panic had jumped from her bed, 
and hid herself in a press or behind a curtain from which she could not, of course, emerge until the major domo and his myrmidons had withdrawn. We now recommenced our search and began to call her name again. It was all to no purpose. Our perplexity and agitation increased. We examined the windows, but they were secured. I implored of Carmilla, if she had concealed herself to play this cruel trick no longer, to come out and to end our anxieties. It was all useless. I was by this time convinced that she was not in the room, nor in the dressing room, the door of which was still locked on this side. She could not have passed it. I was utterly puzzled. Had Carmilla discovered one of those secret passages which the old housekeeper said were known to exist in the Schloss, although the tradition of their exact situation had been lost? A little time would no doubt explain all, utterly perplexed as for the present we were. It was past four o'clock, and I preferred passing the remaining hours of darkness in Madame's room. Daylight brought no solution of the difficulty. The whole household, with my father at its head, was in a state of agitation the next morning. Every part of the chateau was searched, the grounds were explored, no trace of the missing lady could be discovered. The stream was about to be dragged, my father was in distraction, what a tale to have to tell the poor girl's mother on her return. I, too, was almost beside myself, though my grief was quite of a different kind. The morning was passed in alarm and excitement. It was now one o'clock, and still no tidings. I ran up to Carmilla's room and found her standing at her dressing-table. I was astounded. I couldn't believe my eyes. She beckoned me to her with her pretty finger in silence. Her face expressed extreme fear. I ran up to her in an ecstasy of joy. I kissed and embraced her again and again. I ran to the bell and rang it vehemently to bring others to the spot who might at once relieve my father's anxiety. Dear Carmilla, what has become of you all this time? We have been in agonies of anxiety about you, I exclaimed. Where have you been? How did you come back? Last night has been a night of wonders, she said. For mercy's sake, explain all you can. It was past two last night, she said, when I went to sleep as usual in my bed with my doors locked, that of the dressing room, and that opening upon the gallery. My sleep was uninterrupted and, so far as I know, dreamless. But I woke just now on the sofa in the dressing-room there, and I found the door between the rooms open, and the other forced. How could all of this have happened without my being wakened? It must have been accompanied with a great deal of noise, and I am particularly easily wakened. And how could I have been carried out of my bed without my sleep having been interrupted, I whom the slightest stir startles? By this time, Madame, Mademoiselle, my father, and a number of the servants were in the room. Carmilla was, of course, overwhelmed with inquiries, congratulations, and welcomes. She had but one story to tell, and seemed the least able of all the party to suggest any way of accounting for what had happened. My father took a turn up and down the room, thinking. I saw Carmilla's eye follow him for a moment with a sly, dark glance. When my father had sent the servants away, Mademoiselle having gone in search of a little bottle of valerian and sal volatile, and there being no one now in the room with Carmilla except my father, madame, and myself, he came to her thoughtfully, took her hand very kindly, led her to the sofa, and sat down beside her. Will you forgive me, my dear, if I risk a conjecture and ask a question? Who can have a better right, she said. Ask what you please, and I will tell you everything. But my story is simply one of bewilderment and darkness. I know absolutely nothing. Put any question you please, but you know, of course, the limitations Mama has placed me under. 
perfectly, my dear child. I need not approach the topics on which she desires our silence. Now, the marvel of last night consists in your having been removed from your bed and your room without being wakened, and this removal having occurred apparently while the windows were still secured and the two doors locked upon the inside. I will tell you my theory and ask you a question. Carmilla was leaning on her hand dejectedly. Madame and I were listening breathlessly. Now, my question is this. Have you ever been suspected of walking in your sleep? Never, since I was very young indeed. But you did walk in your sleep when you were young. Yes, I know I did. I have been told so often by my old nurse. My father smiled and nodded. Well, what's happened is this. You got up in your sleep and locked the door, not leaving the key as usual in the lock, but taking it out and locking it on the outside. You again took the key out and carried it away with you to some one of the five-and-twenty rooms on this floor, or perhaps upstairs or downstairs. There are so many rooms and closets, so much heavy furniture, and such accumulations of lumber that it would require a week to search this old house thoroughly. Do you see now what I mean? I do, but not all, she answered. And how, Papa, do you account for her finding herself on the sofa in a dressing room which we had searched so carefully? She came there after you had searched it still in her sleep, and at last awoke spontaneously, and was as much surprised to find herself where she was as anyone else. I wish all mysteries were as easily and innocently explained as yours, Carmilla, he said, laughing. And so we may congratulate ourselves on the certainty that the most natural explanation of the occurrence is one that involves no drugging, no tampering with locks, no burglars or poisoners or witches, nothing that need alarm Carmilla or anyone else for our safety. Carmilla was looking charmingly. Nothing could be more beautiful than her tints. Her beauty was, I think, enhanced by that graceful languor that was peculiar to her. I think my father was silently contrasting her looks with mine, for he said, I wish my poor Laura was looking more like herself, and he sighed. So our alarms were happily ended, and Carmilla restored to her friends. 9. The Doctor As Carmilla would not hear of an attendant sleeping in her room, my father arranged that a servant should sleep outside her door, so that she should not attempt to make another such excursion without being arrested at her own door. That night passed quietly, and next morning early, the doctor whom my father had sent for, without telling me a word about it, arrived to see me. Madame accompanied me to the library, and there the grave little doctor, with white hair and spectacles whom I mentioned before, was waiting to receive me. I told him my story, and as I proceeded he grew graver and graver. We were standing, he and I, in the recess of one of the windows facing one another. When my statement was over, he leaned with his shoulders against the wall, and with his eyes fixed on me earnestly, with an interest in which was a dash of horror. After a minute's reflection, he asked Madame if he could see my father. He was sent for accordingly, and as he entered, smiling, he said, I dare say, Doctor, you're going to tell me that I'm an old fool for having brought you here. I hope I am. But his smile faded into shadow, as the doctor, with a very grave face, beckoned him to him. He and the doctor talked for some time in the same recess where I had just conferred with the physician. It seemed an earnest and argumentative conversation. The room is very large, and I and Madame stood together, burning with curiosity at the farther end. Not a word could we hear, however, for they spoke in a very low tone, and the deep recess of the window quite concealed the doctor from view, and very nearly my father, whose foot, arm and shoulder only could we see. 
and the voices were, I suppose, all the less audible for the sort of closet which the thick wall and window formed. After a time my father's face looked into the room. It was pale, thoughtful, and I fancied agitated. Laura, dear, come here for a moment. Madame, we shan't trouble you, the doctor says at present. Accordingly, I approached for the first time, a little alarmed, for, although I felt very weak, I didn't feel ill, and strength, one always fancies, is a thing that may be picked up when we please. My father held out his hand to me as I drew near, but he was looking at the doctor, and he said, It certainly is very odd. I don't understand it quite. Laura, come here, dear. Now attend to Dr. Spielsberg and recollect yourself. You mentioned a sensation like that of two needles piercing the skin somewhere about your neck on the night when you experienced your first horrible dream. Is there still any soreness? None at all, I answered. Can you indicate with your fingers about the point at which you think this occurred? Very little below the throat. Here, I answered. I wore a morning dress which covered the place I pointed to. Now, you can satisfy yourself, said the doctor. You won't mind your papa's lowering your dress a very little. It is necessary to detect a symptom of the complaint under which you may have been suffering. I acquiesced. It was only an inch or two below the edge of my collar. God bless me, so it is, exclaimed my father, growing pale. You see it now with your own eyes, said the doctor with a gloomy triumph. What is it? I exclaimed, beginning to be frightened. Nothing, my dear young lady, but a small blue spot, about the size of the tip of your little finger. And now, he continued, turning to Papa, the question is, what is best to be done? Is there any danger? I urged in great trepidation. I trust not, my dear, answered the doctor. I don't see why you shouldn't recover. I don't see why you shouldn't begin immediately to get better. That is the point at which the sense of strangulation begins. Yes, I answered. And, recollect as well as you can, the same point was a kind of centre of that thrill which you described just now, like uh, the current of a cold stream running against you. It may have been. I think it was. Ah, you see, he added, turning to my father. Shall I say a word to madame? Certainly, said my father. He called madame to him and said, I find my young friend here far from well. It won't be of any great consequence, I hope, but it will be necessary that some steps be taken, which I will explain by and by. But in the meantime, madame, you will be so good as not to let Miss Laura be alone for one moment. That is the only direction I need give you for the present. It is indispensable. We may rely upon your kindness, madame, I know, added my father. Madame satisfied him eagerly. And you, dear Laura, I know you will observe the doctor's direction. I shall have to ask your opinion upon another patient whose symptoms slightly resemble those of my daughter that have just been detailed to you, very much milder in degree, but I believe quite of the same sort. She is a young lady, our guest, but as you say you will be passing this way again this evening, you can't do better than take your supper here, and you can see her then. She doesn't come down till the afternoon. I thank you, said the doctor. I shall be with you then, about seven this evening. And then they repeated their directions to me and to madame, and with this parting charge my father left us and walked out with the doctor, and I saw them pacing together up and down between the road and the moat on the grassy platform in front of the castle, evidently absorbed in earnest conversation. The doctor did not return. I saw him mount his horse there, take his leave, and ride away eastward through the forest. Nearly at the same time I saw the man arrive from Dranfield with the letters and dismount and hand the bag to my father. In the meantime, Madame and I were both busy, lost in conjecture, as to the reasons of the singular and earnest direction which the doctor and my father had concurred in imposing. 
Madame, as she afterwards told me, was afraid the doctor apprehended a sudden seizure and that without prompt assistance I might either lose my life in a fit or at least be seriously hurt. The interpretation did not strike me, and I fancied, perhaps luckily for my nerves, that the arrangement was prescribed simply to secure a companion who would prevent me taking too much exercise or eating unripe fruit or doing any of the fifty foolish things to which young people are supposed to be prone. About half an hour after my father came in, he had a letter in his hand and said, This letter had been delayed. It's from General Spielsdorf. He might have been here yesterday. He may not come till tomorrow, or he may be here today. He put the open letter in my hand, but he didn't look pleased, as he used to, when a guest especially one so much loved as a general was coming. On the contrary, he looked as if he wished him at the bottom of the Red Sea. There was plainly something on his mind which he didn't choose to divulge. Papa, darling, will you tell me this, said I, suddenly laying my hand upon his arm, and looking, I am sure, imploringly in his face. Perhaps, he answered, smoothing my hair caressingly over my eyes. Does the doctor think me very ill? No, dear, he thinks, if the right steps are taken, you'll be quite well again, at least, on the high road to a complete recovery, in a day or two, he answered a little dryly. I wish our good friend the general had chosen any other time, that is, I wish you'd been perfectly well to receive him. But do tell me, Papa, I insisted, what does he think is the matter with me? Nothing. You mustn't plague me with questions, he answered, with more irritation than I ever remembered him to have displayed before, and seeing that I looked wounded, I suppose, he kissed me and added, You shall know all about it in a day or two, that is, all that I know. In the meantime, you're not to trouble your head about it. He turned and left the room, but came back before I had done wondering and puzzling over the oddity of all of this. It was merely to say that he was going to Karnstein, and had ordered the carriage to be ready at twelve, and that I and Madame should accompany him. He was going to see the priest who lived near those picturesque grounds upon business, and as Carmilla had never seen them, she could follow when she came down with Mademoiselle, who would bring materials for what you call a picnic, which might be laid for us in the ruined castle. At twelve o'clock, accordingly, I was ready, and not long after my father, Madame, and I set out on our projected drive. Passing the drawbridge, we turned to the right and followed the road of the steep Gothic bridge westward to reach the deserted village and ruined castle of Karnstein. No sylvan drive can be fancied prettier. The ground breaks into gentle hills and hollows, all clothed with beautiful wood, totally destitute of the comparative formality which artificial planting and early culture and pruning impart. The irregularities of the ground often lead the road out of its course and cause it to wind beautifully round the sides of broken hollows and the steeper sides of the hills, among varieties of ground almost inexhaustible. Turning on one of these points, we suddenly encountered our old friend the general riding towards us, attended by a mounted servant. His portmanteaus were following in a hired wagon, such as we term a cart. The general dismounted as we pulled up, and after the usual greetings, was easily persuaded to accept the vacant seat in our carriage, and sent his horse on with his servant to the Schloss. 10. Bereaved It was about ten months since we had last seen him, but that time had sufficed to make an alteration of years in his appearance. He had grown thinner, something of gloom and anxiety had taken the place of that cordial serenity which used to characterize his features. His dark blue eyes, always penetrating, now gleamed with a sterner light from under his shaggy grey eyebrows. It was not such a change as grief alone usually induces, 
and angrier passions seem to have had their share in bringing it about. We had not long resumed our drive when the general began to talk, with his usual soldierly directness, of the bereavement, as he termed it, which he had sustained in the death of his beloved niece and ward, and he then broke out in a tone of intense bitterness and fury, inveighing against the hellish arts to which she had fallen victim, and expressing with more exasperation and piety his wonder that heaven should tolerate so monstrous an indulgence of the lusts and malignity of hell. My father, who saw at once that something very extraordinary had befallen, asked him, if not too painful to him, to detail the circumstances which he thought justified the strong terms in which he expressed himself. I should tell you with all pleasure, said the general, but you would not believe me. Why should I not? he asked. Because, he answered testily, you believe in nothing but what consists with your own prejudices and illusions. I remember when I was like you, but I have learned better. Try me, said my father. I am not such a dogmatist as you suppose. Besides which, I know very well that you generally require proof for what you believe, and am therefore very strongly predisposed to respect your conclusions. You are right in supposing that I have not been led lightly into a belief in the marvellous, for what I have experienced is marvellous, and I have been forced by extraordinary evidence to credit that which ran counter diametrically to all my theories. I have been made the dupe of a preternatural conspiracy. Notwithstanding his professions of confidence and general's penetration, I saw my father at this point glance at the general with, as I thought, a marked suspicion of his sanity. The general didn't see it, luckily. He was looking gloomily and curiously into the glades and vistas of the woods that were opening before us. You are going to the ruins of Karnstein, he said. Yes, it is a lucky coincidence. Do you know I was going to ask you to bring me there to inspect them? I have a special object in exploring. There is a ruined chapel there, ain't there, with a great many tombs of that extinct family. So there are, highly interesting, said my father. I hope you are thinking of claiming the title in the States. My father said this gaily, but the general didn't recollect the laugh, or even the smile, which courtesy extracts for a friend's joke. On the contrary, he looked grave, and even fierce, ruminating on a matter that stirred his anger and horror. Something very different, he said gruffly. I mean to unearth some of these fine people. I hope by God's blessing to accomplish a pious sacrilege here, which will relieve our earth of certain monsters, and enable honest people to sleep in their beds without being assailed by murderers. I have strange things to tell you, my dear friend, such as I myself would have scouted as incredible a few months since. My father looked at him again, but this time not with a glance of suspicion, with an eye rather of keen intelligence and alarm. The house of Karnstein, he said, has been long extinct, a hundred years at least. My dear wife was maternally descended from the Karnsteins, but the name and title have long ceased to exist. The castle is a ruin, the very village is deserted. It's fifty years since the smoke of a chimney was seen there, not a roof left. Quite true. I have heard a great deal about that since I last saw you, a great deal it will astonish you but I had better relate everything in the order in which it occurred, said the general. You saw my dear ward, my child, I may call her. No creature could have been more beautiful, and only three months ago none more blooming. Yes, poor thing, when I saw her last, she certainly was quite lovely, said my father. I was grieved and shocked more than I can tell you, my dear friend. I knew what a blow it was to you. He took the general's hand 
and they exchanged a kind of pressure. Tears gathered in the old soldier's eyes. He didn't seek to conceal them, he said. We have been very old friends. I knew you would feel for me childless as I am. She had become an object of very near interest to me, and repaid my care by an affection that cheered my home and made my life happy. That is all gone. The years that remain to me on earth may not be very long, but by God's mercy I hope to accomplish a service to mankind before I die, and to subserve the vengeance of heaven upon the fiends who have murdered my poor child in the spring of her hopes and beauty. You said just now that you intended relating everything as it occurred, said my father. Pray do. I assure you that it is not mere curiosity that prompts me. By this time we had reached the point at which the Drunstall Road, by which the general had come, diverges from the road which we were travelling to Karnstein. How far is it to the ruins? inquired the general, looking anxiously forward. About half a league, answered my father. Pray, let us hear the story you were so good as to promise. So that was um, bits, chapters, sections 6 to 10 of Carmilla. There's another six to go, I think, so that'll form part three, the the third and final part of the classic ghost stories reading of Carmilla by Joseph Sheridan Lefanu. Um, I'm not going to talk about, I talked a little bit about Carmilla and Sheridan Lefanu in the first one. I'm sure if you're listening to these in order, you don't want to hear me rabbiting on, you just want to get on to the next bit. Anyway, so I will make time to do my normal begging letter. So if you like it, if you like what we're doing, please share it absolutely makes such a big difference to us share it like it uh, if you if you love it go on to one of the podcast sites apple or stitcher or somewhere mm, apple or stitcher or somewhere and um rate it as long as you love it obviously and finally if you absolutely adore it and you think uh, that tony walker is a wonderful man which my mum at least thinks um then you could become one of our patrons and join up to, to Patreon, Patreon at uh, www.patreon.com forward slash Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D, that's Bravo, Alpha, Romeo, Charlie, Uniform, Delta. So uh, if you did that, that would be great. And you get some exclusive stuff if you sign up, actually. There's different stories, there's ebooks and stuff. It's all related to ghost stories, obviously, which otherwise wouldn't make any sense, would it? So anyway... Speak to you next week. If it is next week already, just go on and listen to part three of Carmilla. Bye.